Welcome to the At Percussion Podcast, episode 327. My name is Ben Charles, and I am absent from my regular co-host today. We're doing a very special episode. Uh, this episode will be a tribute to Christopher Dean, who is the Associate Professor of Percussion at UNT from 2000 until 2021, when he sadly passed away. He was also the timpanist of the East Texas Symphony and principal percussionist with the Las Colinas Symphony, and formerly the timpanist of the Greensboro Symphony Orchestra. He was an award-winning composer with over 80 pieces, many of which have become standards in the percussion canon. And with me today, we have a very special uh, group of people. Um, first of all, we have Brady Spitz, who you met recently on the podcast, and Brady's going to help me co-pilot this episode today. Welcome, Brady. Thanks so much. Brady's a uh, former student of Christopher Dean and a friend of mine from UNT. And then we have a few other former Christopher Dean students uh, with us. We have Jason Baker, who teaches at Mississippi State. Hey, thank you for having me. Of course. We have Ejin Fang, who teaches at the University of Virginia. Hello, everyone. And John Lane, who teaches at Sam Houston State University. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course, as well as Josh Smith, who's the owner of Ox and Lamb Music and a freelance percussionist based in Lexington, Kentucky. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Glad to be here. And we have Drew Lang, who is a freelancer on the Dallas scene that worked with Chris in that capacity and is also professor of percussion at Southern Methodist, Methodist University. University. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. Doing well. So that is our panel today. Um, I wanted to ask these people in particular because most of them performed on the lovely Christopher Dean tribute concert that was held a few weeks ago at the University of North Texas. Um, and it was great to get to hear everyone play and meet everyone. And so I, I devised some questions. We'll kind of go around the room and talk about these and might lead to some open discussions. So I'd like to start with Jason, uh, who I met for the first time and got to play Chris's quartet Vespertine Formations with. Uh, Jason was one of the people that premiered Vespertine Formations uh, in what was it around 2004, I believe it was composed. Um, and when we were preparing this piece for the tribute concert recently, it was so apparent the level of care that Chris put into this piece. It sounds like there's quite a storied history to the composition of this masterpiece. So can you tell us what it was like to work with Chris on the piece? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I, I think it's important for me to say two things. Um, first, um, back when we did this, it was in 2003 when we premiered it. And if you would have told me that almost 20 years later, I'd be on a podcast uh, talking about this, this piece, um, that would have completely blew my mind. Um, and I think it's because we were certainly aware of how great the piece was and it was a real honor to work with Mr. Dean, but um, you know, being a graduate student at the University of North Texas at the time, that was like one of 35 things we had going on then. So um, yeah, so it's, it's certainly become more apparent as the, as the years have gone by, the people that have performed it, the people that have recorded it um just to see you know to have the opportunity to have been a part of that at the very beginning is um something that i've really come to see the importance of and also it's, it's really hard for me to talk about this piece without talking about the other people who i premiered it with um it was myself john lane ejen fong and eric willie and um so 
whenever I perform that and whenever I hear the piece, um, it's, it's impossible for me to separate the piece from the friendship and the experiences I had with those, those people. So I guess a little bit about how the, the work on the piece and how it was put together. Um, we had a little quartet named the Bain Percussion Group, um, Eric, Johnny, Jen, and I. Um, and we had, we formed, I think in 2002 maybe, and we had performed um, a, a number of, of concerts on our own that previous year. And actually one of the original members was Rob Moore, who won the audition for the army band. So he left to go there and he Jen came on board, I believe the summer of 2003. So we were rehearsing on our own, I think maybe once or twice a week in rehearsal room 142. <laughs> and um, there was talk, I think Eric was telling me that Dean was writing a quartet and he wanted us to be the group to premiere it. And if memory serves me right, I think it was, he had a session accepted at PASIC where it was going to be a session on his keyboard percussion music. He was going to perform a couple of his marimba solos, his vibraphone solos, and then there was going to be a new quartet that he had written. So um, I believe in the early fall, we began to get together to rehearse that, and he would write out scores, handwritten, and then give them to us, and we would cut and paste our parts on poster board. And um, maybe once a week or so, we would get together with him and with all of the other things we had going on as teaching assistants, you know, trying to take our own courses and all of that, we'd you know, have just enough time to kind of fit these notes in to our heads. And um, so we would rehearse once a week, I think, and it was sort of a work in progress where he would sort of flip things around, um, and there would be things that would evolve over the course of the rehearsals as he heard the piece. And probably the most notable thing was that the ending that exists now, I don't believe is the original ending, how it ends with the brush mallets uh, fluttering. I think there was a different ending. And the way the brush mallet flutter came about, I, I remember this story taking place in 142. John tells it taking place in Dean's office. I'll, I'll, I'll go with John, but I have a memory of this taking place during a rehearsal where Dean made these brush mallets, the IP240 taped onto the BR ones. And, you know, just as curious percussionists we were certainly kids at at, at the time um, we just started kind of you know playing around with them and John came up with this effect where he would shake them very fast and it would create this bird-like fluttering sound and the inspiration for the piece I believe I don't know the full story again this is going back about 20 years but on the University of North Texas campus particularly over the parking lot where Bain Hall is there's these groupings of birds. It seems like thousands of birds almost doing like this synchronized swimming type of thing in, in the air. So um, I think Dean's experience with that in some way influenced the title and the thematic ideas 
and I think Dean not wanting to be too obvious in his in inspiration, he was sort of reluctant at first because he's like, that's, you know, kind of gimmicky or something. But eventually, um, it, the next week or something, when we showed back up or he passed out the next week's changes on that piece, it had had those uh, brush fluttering things uh, notated in. So from there, we performed it, we premiered it actually on a global rhythms concert um, in the concert hall. Uh, before it was the Vortman concert hall, it was kind of this older it was nice. <laughs> space. Yeah, before it was nice. It had these, these like 1970s era chairs and, and stuff. And we recorded it on, no, we performed it on the global rhythms concert. I actually have a CD of that. Um, I've been meaning to just because everything that's gone on in, in the past month or so, I'd like to go back and take a listen to that. But I remember like holding on for dear life, you know, trying to get this thing together. And I think back on this now, I mean, where, you know, this, this is, this is a really cool story to tell, but keeping in mind, I mean, we were all kids, you know, and, um, to, to hear the groups that have performed it now and to come back to it later in life and perform it. Um, you know, we were just trying to hold on and, you know, trying to pull this thing off. So we premiered it there. And then for the PACIC performance, we, um, we did a little tour. We performed at University of Memphis and Middle Tennessee State University. Then we played it at PASIC in Louisville. And that's when it started to sink in, like what the legacy of this piece might be because all of these people that I had never met before, but I thought were really, really famous and these huge names, which they certainly were, people like Gordon Stout, Nancy Zeltzman, Bill Mersch. I look in the back of the room and they're all in there and it's turning into sort of a standing room only event. And we're thinking, oh, oh Lord, <laughs> you know, we have this really, really difficult piece and all of these people are, you know, just the name Christopher Dean and the fact that he's a composer who whenever he writes for an instrument, he reinvents how that instrument is written for. I think that's a very fair thing to say. If you go through most, if not all of his pieces, he reinvents the writing of the instrument, but does it in a way that's not gimmicky, that's not novelty. It's something that is true art. So we played at PASIC and then I believe we recorded it I believe the next summer, I think, maybe summer of 2004, because it's when a bunch of us were just about out the door. I think John knew he was going to Wyoming. Ejen was about to go to Virginia. I'm not sure if I'd interviewed at Mississippi State yet, but we recorded it and then we performed it again at PASIC in 2010 in Indianapolis, the first year that they had it there. And John couldn't be on that performance. So we actually brought rob moore back and he played john's part and so that was the last time i had played it um before this past month and it was funny during rehearsals then you know when we were back in denton a few weeks ago people were referring to me as one of the the original members or i had some kind of secret knowledge of it and it's not like i was practicing this thing every single day for the past 12 years if anything I just knew where the really difficult parts were. 
So, um, but it was, it was, it was a really beautiful experience to go back and not only celebrate Christopher Dean's life and play, pay tribute to him, but do it in a way that reconnected me with some of my best friends that I've ever had. And it, it allowed me to notice that he was part of this bigger thing that not only are we a part of, but I go back there and talk to the current students now, and even students who were there before or after me who I never met. And there's this real bond. And um, I'm not just saying that to say that or saying that to be sentimental. It, it was a very deep and palatable thing um, that I, I certainly felt. So um, yeah, it, it was, a great experience to premiere it, but to come back later in life and have that be something I could come back to and experience it, but on a deeper level, um, that that's, you know, something I really can't put in into words, so. It's funny hearing you say you knew where all the hard parts were because I found where all the hard parts were. <laughs> I found out. But uh, Jason mentioned these brush mouths, and I just happened to have them sitting next to my desk here. I was just going to show for anyone curious. It's it's just a regular marimba mallet with like a nylon brush tape to it. And I don't know if you can hear this, but it sounds like bird wings fluttering when you flap them like that. So, uh, well, John, since you were the uh, the sort of innovator on new techniques with brush mallets, let's let's go to you <laughs> next. And so I know that you traveled to Japan with Chris in 2007 for the Hokuto International Music Festival. And when I was doing my research for this, I even found a video clip of a very energetic Super Nick performance online. So can <laughs> yeah. you tell us about that experience? And it was you and Chris and his kids and Nathan Ratliff, if I understand correctly. And, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Chris brought the whole family on that trip. So that was um, so I got I got the job here at Sam Houston State in uh, fall of 2006 is when I started. And it wasn't long after I had started that that Chris called and said that he was he would really like to form a, a professional percussion group. That was something that he'd always wanted to do. And uh, he thought that he thought that I would be a good person to collaborate with and Brian Zader. So it was the three of us that set out to make this group. We were called Pulsus. And um, we started, uh, Brian had had already long, long established ties in Japan with uh, Keiko Abe from studying there and, and Minoru Miki. And so Miki had invited Brian to put together a program for his festival. And that was right around the time that we were forming. So I, I think uh, you can ask Brian when you have him on uh, in your next show, but uh, to confirm how this all went down. But I believe that Miki had, had asked him to put together a program of American percussion to bring to this thing. And so since we were just forming, I think he had proposed that maybe we, uh, we would bring our group and come and play. So uh, we started planning and it wasn't long into the planning that Brian announced that uh, they were going to be expecting a child right about the time that we would be off to Japan. So we had to, Brian had to back out of the show and uh, thankfully Nathan Ratliff was, was willing and around and just the right, just the right person to, to join the group. Uh, he learned all of Brian's parts and even learned the uh, solo part to Marimba Spiritual, which he had to learn quite, you know, fairly quickly and put together. And uh, it was just the, just the right, you know, just the right personality and just the right fit. So basically, um, yeah, so it was an invitation of Minoru Miki through Brian. 
and we put together a program of things that because we were just forming i mean we we had we had not i don't think we had even played any concerts by that point we were just sort of brand new group so we put together a program of pieces that we thought we could put together in relatively short amount of time so we did um russell peck's liftoff we did uh eugene novotny's uh, intentions we did uh, a george hamilton green like xylophone medley uh, the big, the big banner piece was the Mickey's Marimba Spiritual, and then we did uh, Stubernick. We did Ford Stubernick, um, and I think that was, I think that was the program. And so um, the the event itself was this huge international music festival, and it was um, hosted by this uh, Japanese cosmetics company. I can't remember the name of the company. But they had this like retreat center up in the mountains. It was a, a train ride away from Tokyo. I don't remember my geography of where exactly it was, but it was up in the mountains. And they had this beautiful outdoor amphitheater. And this is where we were going to play this concert. And then, of course, as part of that trip, we did run out concerts. Like we did some concerts in Nagoya and, and a few other places where we left from that, that center and went out to, to do some touring concerts. But um, it was just an incredible, um, an incredible experience. And of course, Chris brought his whole family. So, you know, the kids got to experience Japanese culture. And of course, Janice was always uh, was very, um, you know, active in getting getting them to, you know, learn some of the language. And it was just beautiful, cultural, uh, beautiful uh, experience. But um, what can I tell you about about this trip is that it was um you know, this was an international festival. So like we were the, the American, <laughs> we were the token Americans on this program playing, playing this percussion music, but there were people, there was like a really famous pipa player who, you know, is a very famous for playing, you know, um, that instrument. There was a shakuhachi player, just one of the most beautiful concerts, uh, was the shakuhachi, the pipa, uh, all kinds of folk and world music from Asia, Southeast Asia, mostly Asian and Southeast Asian uh, countries. And um, and then we also got to meet Yuki Kurahara, who was the professor at that time. I think she retired some years ago, but she was the professor at the Nagoya College of Music. And she's the one that commissioned Steve Reich of uh, Nagoya Marimbas and gave the premiere. So we got to play a concert with her and her daughter and um you know be at the nagoya college of music we had all kinds of really great experiences but um one of the one of the funny stories from that trip and this is a, a great example of you know uh I, I guess the thing that was was so fun about that trip too for for me was you, you know i was just becoming a real professional by that point you know i i taught a little bit i'd been to cincinnati to do grad school um, but this was my real my first real professional gig and um i got to share it with christopher dean who was just the you know the best i mean that having that transition from being his student to then being a colleague was just you know wonderfully he was wonderfully supportive it was just seamless to slip into a different role you know because in school it was mr dean and you know uh just so much reverence but then then as we sort of learned this new relationship of, of working together. It was really beautiful. And I just, I'll, I'll remember that always as being, you know, one of the highlights of my performing career was getting to play and, and play with him in that way. Um, but there's a funny story. I could tell a funny story about this trip, which is two, two things that were sort of funny. One is, um, Chris's kids were 
preteens in that age. So they, they have strong memories of this. And I was sharing uh, some memories about this trip with Nigel, his youngest, at the concert at UNT a couple weeks ago. And uh, Nigel says, do you remember that Tyco video game? And because they were like really into video games at this time. And uh, sure enough, I, not only do I remember it, but I have a photo of us playing the Tyco video game. So this was at some, this was in, we had a few days in Tokyo that were just free days that, you know, vacation days. I can't remember how many days, you know, maybe three or four or five days, something like that. And so we were wandering around in this market and we found, the kids found uh, this video game arcade and they had a Tyco video game. So Chris and I played uh, this Tyco video game. But I had, I, it, you're talking about the days before cell phones. Well, this was uh, the trip where I had like, a digital video camera. So I got lots of pictures of the Japan trip and video and everything else. So there, there's a lot of documentation of that. So this is, uh, this is the three of us, uh, right before, I think we played a concert at UNT right before we left on the trip. So this was, and, uh, so that's Chris and, and Nathan and myself, this was us playing Stubernick at the festival, um, at the Hokuto festival. Uh, it was this huge, um, compound for lack of a better word it's this huge thing and they had this like state-of-the-art outdoor amphitheater and you can see sort of the shadows in the back there it was it was outdoors and it had sort of a shell and lights and behind were these beautiful you know red pine trees that would there were huge trees up behind it so it made this beautiful casting shadows from all the tree branches and things lovely uh, so we I had this was he has a I see that he has a log drum for the base part of Stubernick that's right. I, I always That's remember right. him saying, I just don't feel right hitting the instrument where it's not supposed to be hit. And he always <laughs> had a piece of wood hanging or a, a log drum or something like that. Yeah. And it always sounded better than playing on the frame, you know? So, yeah. But anyway, these are just some pictures. This is us playing the, the Novotny tambourine trio. Uh, here, here we are with Minoru Miki. Uh, Minoru Miki, uh, my favorite story about Minoru Miki from this trip is that for some reason they kept taking us to Italian restaurants. I guess they thought we needed to, you know, that we would want to eat pizza and pasta or something. So they kept taking us to Italian restaurants. And I will never forget, uh, Minoru Miki ate a slice of pizza with his chopsticks. He reached in, scooped up the pizza, folded it, and and ate it with, with the chopsticks. I mean, ninja-level skills from from Minoru Miki. Here we are. Uh, this was just in one of the shops that we were looking at, uh, visiting various temples and things. And, and there was the Taiko. And then this was uh, the later iteration of the group when, when Brian joined us uh, again. And this is us with the composer, Peter Garland. We did a big project uh, where we played a bunch of Peter Garland's music on uh, a later, a later program. Uh, that was in 2009. So I think Pulsus, um, was roughly i think we existed from yeah 2006 2007 to roughly 2010 2011 somewhere in that somewhere in that range um but i think that garland thing was the last big project that we did together but uh the other funny story was involving chris's kids um and and this was a you know it was their big family trip and we were in nagoya and by that point, we had been already in Hokuto for some time. And um, I don't remember the timeline exactly, but we had already been in Japan for some days, for several, several days. And the kids were really, you know, tired of, of eating unfamiliar foods. And they were ready for something that was familiar, pancakes and French fries or something, you know. 
And so uh, Yuki picked us up from the train station and, and, you know, Chris said, you know, we're really hoping to get the kids something, um, you know, maybe some American food. If you, if you can, if you can recommend a place, maybe we can find something for the kids. And she says, okay, no problem. We'll, we'll go to a place that has all kinds of cuisine, international cuisine, and they have American food. We're thinking, okay, perfect. Kids are going to get some pancakes. Everybody's going to be happy. So we're riding in the car and we pull up and and here we are you know going through the streets in Nagoya and we pull into this par parking structure and there's a big red and yellow sign Denny's it's Denny's and I thought no surely we're not going to Denny's we went to Denny's with Yuki Kurahara and the kids had uh french fries and pancakes and were just delighted and, and yeah anyway but that was a tremendous trip um yeah, very memorable. Some beautiful uh, musical experiences too. I, I had a piece of mind that I, I got to play, um, that we played a piece of mind there that it was just, you know, one of these great full circle moments where, you know, Chris had been such an inspiration for me to want to become a composer. And then I wrote a piece and here we are playing it with him in Japan. I mean, it's just one of those mountaintop kind of experiences. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the story of Pulsus and japan awesome drew i think you had something yeah i was just gonna sort of throw out there on the stupernik apparently because chris was so like i don't want to damage the instrument he built this thing that you hook onto the side and you hit on that instead of the frame and um, th there's a lot more stuff of like um, just being um, teaching in his studio this like past year of just like seeing all the things he had designed and tried and things that didn't work and he reworked it to like make it work, you know, and it's just like, uh, holy cow, you know, but... Um, I'd, I'd also say, you know, just on like my standpoint here, um, I'm kind of the outsider, you know, I wish I would have gotten to have been uh, studied with him because like, um, just like within the last week, Janice played me a record of the first recording that he and Janice and Carol Stump made. And so and it was a, Deal like where Chris was playing, uh, been hammered dulcimer and mug paramba. Janice was playing percussion, and uh, Carol was playing mug paracas. And I was like listening to it, it's like, holy cow, this is like incredible. I mean, like, it's not like, um, the like thing that I think with Chris's j just not dealing with his composition or teaching or whatever it well his like playing like teaching like or whatever like this like record was like okay his playing of the like hammered dulcimer was like incredible i mean it's like this is a guy that's like okay he's on the level of any major composer you know and then but it's like his like Hammer dulcimer playing is incredible. Then he goes to play marimba, 
And it's like, damn, that's accurate. <laughs> you know, it's like really, really good. And it's like, okay. And uh, Janice told me at this point, like he was 28 when they re-recorded this. And it's like, dude, you've got to get this out there. Because it's like, it is incredible. You know, and it's like his composition, it's not, well, that's really good for a percussionist. No, this is a composer that is like on the level of like Steve Reich, of anyone of that ilk. It w wouldn't matter who he's composing for, if it's string quartet, orchestra, or you know, whatever. But it was just the quality of the composition, but of like playing dulcimer. You know, and it's like, just like seeing I Jing play that timpani piece. How did he come up with that? You know, this such is like, this is not timpani writing. <laughs> you know, this is actually musical writing. You know, so it was just, but his, I'll sort of get into this more, but his just ability to like tinker with stuff. And I've got an example of it, but I'll can get back to it later. Yeah, I just I, the tinkering thing reminded me real quick, just a funny story. Uh, one of the things I saw that he made was, you know, we use a black towel on a music stand a lot of the time. He actually sewed some sort of thing that it, like the, the towel would like hook over the music stand so it wouldn't slide around and rub off, whatever. Uh, and I saw someone ask him, what is that? And he was like, oh, it's a, it's a little. And he held it up like it was a skirt. <laughs> I'm a snare drum nut. That's kind of like, okay, if, if I had to, to just play one thing my entire life, it would be snare drum. And there's this like one drum that I have that Chris envied. And it just happens to be a Noble and Cooley 3.75 by 14 uh, piccolo. So it's a solid shell and... Um, if you know like Noble and Cooley drums, like they're all like solid shells, um, but their throw-offs are kind of Gladstone, which is like, okay, it goes right up to the top. So um, that works fine on deeper drums, but on a shallow drum, basically like when you get to the 45 degree angle, that's the tightest point. And then if you go flat up, it's like looser. So it's kind of crappy. You know, but, so I took this drum and I and, uh, and took it to a, a milling place and they made me a plate. I can see if I can get it up, up here. That it pushes the throw off further out. And same thing like with the butt plate. So, um, and he just adored it. And it's like, so like, and, and he was saying, I want a drum like that. Now, now, and like, this is a funny story. Okay, so eventually he got one. And I found out Ed Sof gave him this drum. So inside of the drum, it says Ed Sof. So then and Chris was like, well, like, let me, you know, okay, it's like, what was that now? And like, Chris... Just give me the drum. I'll take it to my guy. He'll make a plate. And the deal was like, 
I didn't want to drill more holes into the shell. So I'd had it where like um, this plate, you could mount the screws into the shell, but then also mount the screws into the throw off. So it basically made it where you didn't have to drill any more shells. And it also, just because like I'd had some extra spacers put in, it put the, the uh, throw off in the butt end away from the drum. So instead of the snares being pulled up, they're being pulled sideways. So it was just a better sound. So then, um, and I was like ragging on him this whole time, Chris, give me the freaking drum. I'll get my guy to fix, you know, this like um, complaint and stuff. So anyway, um, back this past like, September, when like he couldn't, and teach anymore up and he had asked me if if I would teach for him and so like I said yes you know no question so like I was in his open studio and there was this drum sitting by a filing cabinet he had taken scrap pieces of wood and made the exact same extensions that I had made out of brass and it's like I give, <laughs> you know, and it's like, he, he was just, just seeing some of the things like he would expand with or just little trinkets he would make to make his like life open easier. Like for instance, he made a Miller machine, which you know, if like you don't know like what that is, it's a triangle like machine where, where like you'd actually mount an open triangle and there'd be like a counterweight triangle beater sort of which like you could play like with a finger or a stick or like what like whatever he made one just out of scrap and scrap wood you know it's just like the mental capacity that he had to like okay okay something else that is in his and studio like right now is this it looks like a piece of like um it's a weapon <laughs> like some sort. It's like this big sort of contraption and it has big spikes and things like that. And it turns out Brady's spits, like 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 it you let me know exactly what this was, it is a mount to put a brake drum that you can mount a bass drum pedal to and play. And it was like, how did he come up with this stuff? You know, it's just like it's just it was just incredible just to see of like, not only as a, a player, composer, but also as a tinkerer of just how above everyone else that I've ever seen. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah, so I just wanted to share a quick story. You're talking about his tinkering, but his tinkering went beyond just you know, the things that he would would think to do. And there's this great, there's a beautiful story that, that Al Adi from Cincinnati would tell about Chris. And it, and it perfectly encapsulates who he was as a person and this sort of nature that he had to want to to wanna tinker and fix things. So uh, at Cincinnati, when he was there, he was a student. Uh, an undergraduate student came in that was born with only like two fingers. 
And, uh, but the, the kid had a dream to, you know, wanted to be, get a music education degree, loved music. And so they accepted the kid. He just had a really, really good heart and a good, you know, work ethic and was, was going to be there and study music. So, um, it came time for one of his juries, the story goes, and the, the student came in and announced that he would be playing YOLO after the rain for his jury. Well, uh, Chris had taken it upon himself to figure out a way to help this guy. Um, he, he figured out a way, a little contraption, some sort of, you know, thing that he built that he could put the mallets in that the kid could then hold with his two fingers and then operate and play yellow after the rain. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of, nobody asked him to, nobody said that, you know, it wasn't an assignment. He just saw that something needed to be fixed and needed to be done. And, and he quietly went about it and did it and figured out how to make it work. And like, if that doesn't encapsulate the kind of, you know, person that he was and just his nature, I mean, that's like the best, the best story about, about that side of his, you know, of his personality. So I just wanted to share that. Uh, well, uh, you, you know, Drew was talking about the way he was composing and stuff. And, um, Ben, you wanted me to talk about his compositions and I wrote my dissertation on his, I focused on his three primary vibraphone pieces. He said, there are some others floating around out there, but he said, one of them will not, will not ever see the light of day and we'll see what happens. <laughs> but anyway, a uh, morning dove sonnet and he did a piece called the apocryphal still life. And the one after that was uh, disquietude. And, um, he did a really nice video <clears throat> with Morning Dove Sonnet, and that's going to come out. And he explains all the techniques and things like that. The second piece that he that that I focused on was the apocryphal still life. And like what Drew was saying, like or somebody was saying, he always kind of reinvented the instrument. You know, he for sure did that with Morning Dove Sonnet. And then for the apocryphal still life, um, it's. Uh, you don't need to do anything special with mallets. It's just normal mallets, <laughs> but you do have to alter the suspension cord between a D natural and E natural. So, and move it over the post so that when the pedal is up and everything is dampened, those two notes ring out. And um, he does a lot of craftiness with uh, very fast notes and then one note that rings or two notes that ring. And I. I find that a lot in his music, you know, where he juxtaposes opposites, you know, he juxtaposes long tones with short tones and he just kind of finds a way, at least in the vibraphone pieces, he always found a way to sort of do that. And when I performed Morning Dove Sonnet, I was thinking uh, like for the celebration about a month ago, a few weeks ago, I was thinking that that's probably like the 35th or the 40th time that I've performed it. And every time I perform it, I always learn something new about it. And it just, it always just blows me away the depth of his writing and the thought that he put into it. And all of these layers, you know, we have the, the two or three surface layers that everybody catches uh, at the beginning, but then the more I live with it, I, I, there are so many other layers to how all the measures connect with all of the other measures, you know what I mean? And the apocryphal still life is one of those. And then for the other piece, Disquietude, speaking of tinkering, he uh, has has you play with these paint stirrer mallets, which is just a paint stirrer from 
stores. He says Sherman Williams are the best because these are the five gallon paint stirrers. Like five gallon ones are thicker and they're longer and they're wider. But like if you go to Lowe's, the five gallon stirrer is like almost twice the width, you know, and it doesn't quite work. So anyway, Sherman Williams paint stirrers. And then this is a, a rubber stopper like you would put on a bottle, but it's cut in half and then glued onto it. So this acts like, um, uh, it sounds a lot like a vibraphone mallet, just like a rubber mallet. But in that piece, he has you playing with this and playing with the corner and then doing like cluster chords with, with all of it and then playing on the edge and also um, turning it and bowing the vibraphone bars with this. And the story that surrounds that is that he was doing some performance, Virginia Beach or something like that. And whatever it was, like a half an hour before the performance, he was joining up with somebody and they, they wanted like a violin player. Do you think we can get, it was like a non-musician, they just think everything is at our fingertips. Hey, can we get a violin player real quick? And it's like, we're performing a half hour I'm in the foreign city. I don't know if we can get a vibraphone, a violin player. So he's like, huh? And he thought that um, he, he was like, well, I mean, wood against metal works on like prayer bowls, you know, just the, the wooden shack. And there's a hardware store across the street. I just think that's like his mothership, you know, the hardware store. And so he just went over, grabbed some paint stirs, came back. I'll just try it out. And sure enough, it bowed. So anyway, he did this whole performance and he was playing and he was bowing and everybody was blown away, of course, you know. So anyway, uh, that's kind of a little snapshot of some of the other vibraphone pieces that don't get a whole lot of uh, play when compared to Morning Dove Sonnet, but I still for sure uh, just as valuable. Well, speaking of his compositions, uh, as Drew mentioned at the, the tribute concert at UNT, Ejen gave this beautiful performance of uh, Chris's timpani piece, The Bones of Trang Zhu, uh, which I understand that Ejen and Chris actually had the same birthday, different years, but the same day of the year. Um, and I think this piece was a birthday gift for Ejen. So Ejen, could you tell us about, did he just hand you this piece on your birthday or what? <laughs> yeah, so, um, so he gave me this piece, basically like, you know, he always, show a piece of it, piece of it. But uh, since I have my uh, first doctoral recital at UNT uh, scheduled for April 14, 2003. So basically it's like the birthday gift for 2002. So when I was 22 and he was 44. And so we found out about, we have the same birthday actually the day before our birthday in 2001. So we were just chatting outside his office and I was like, yeah, I'm, you know, my birthday is tomorrow. And he's like, interesting. You know what? My birthday is also tomorrow. So I was like, oh, wow. And so, yeah. So after that, Chris has, well, Mr. Ding actually has the love of Chinese literature. And since I speak Chinese and my mom is a Chinese literature teacher. So he was telling me about this poem, Bones of Zhuangzi. And he's wondering if I can find 
the Chinese version of it. And then also he knows I have some dance background and also I have the Dalcross arithmetic uh, background as well. So this all these ideas was forming in his mind uh, with the Ch Chinese poem and with the movement and uh, Chinese Tom Tom. But he knows he wants to do a timpani piece because the the bones of drums, so like idea of the sound of the bones and imitating the bones. Um, so he's like, it's just funny because I always, every time I ask Mr. Ding, like, can I play your marimba solo? He's like, no, 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 no. There's so many better pieces out there. Don't play my piece. But this time he's like, but I'm actually going to write you a piece on timpani. And I was like, great. So like, I think the first, first little note he gave me was actually on the back of a UNT uh, envelope. It's like a UNT envelope and it just like steps. So it's basically was the Morse code of, uh, of my name, the rhythm of my, rhythm of the Morse code of my name. And he just wrote it and the steps and then gave it to me on a, just an envelope. I was like, I still have that. So uh, I was like, cool. He's like, yeah, you are going to walk in that rhythm and with the Chinese town now. I was like, okay, but I still don't know what's going on with really with the piece. And so every time he just gave me a little bit. And so I have one piece that he copied with all this like B square, you know, C square or Fs circle and just a lot of notation because now you know you heard the piece there's many notation he invented to write the piece yeah so since it's like a birthday gift so he actually all the time signature it's our birthday and plus so it's like 12 8 and 11 8 which is our birth date but then he also included my ear seven, eight, and nine, eight. The majority of the piece is in that meter. Now you know my age. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so it's basically 12. You're 26, <laughs> always 26. We'll, we'll bleep it out, no math. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so yeah, so it's basically 12, eight, 11, eight, or 12, four, 11, four throughout the piece. Yes, and so I did, I was able to find, the interesting thing is I, for my 2003 performance, I was not able to find the original Chinese poem by Zhang Mingzi, but Zhang Mingzi wrote this poem inspired by Zhuangzi's, actual Zhuangzi's poem talking about death and bones. So I was able to record Zhuangzi's, Zhuangzi's bones, poem in Chinese for my 2003 performance. But this past uh, UNT uh, celebration, I was able to find Zhang Mingzi's poem. And so I re-recorded and altered the, the way like I remember we were, Chris and I actually was trying to figure out how to do the voice in the beginning. And I found one of our email conversations say, yes, whisper sounds good. 
So I guess I say something about maybe whisper sound good. And then he replied, say, yes, let's do some of the voicing with a whisper and in the beginning of intro. So, and I found that piece is pretty fitting for the celebration concert uh, because he loves Zhuangzi's philosophy. And one of the Zhuangzi's philosophy was, you know, you don't need to be sad. Death is actually easy. Living is hard. And I just remember when Mr. Ding called me on September 22nd, 17 days before he passed. He's like, I'm at peace with this. I'm okay with it. I had a great life. I taught all these students, great students. I learned from all these great students and colleagues and I'm okay with it and I'm at peace. And so I feel like the piece is like telling us like, hey, it's okay. I'm actually in a good place and you guys are still living. So you guys are work, need to still working hard. And, and like what Mr. Ding told me, just keep contributing, so. That's really beautiful. Yeah, like it's, it seems like we should kind of wrap up right there. <laughs> but, but I, uh, I, I, you know, I told Janice, uh, his wife, that he was humbled to a fault um, to where in a world where everything is driven by clicks and engagement and view counts, he didn't participate in that and he wasn't interested um and it's so like hearing you say it's so like him to say oh yeah don't don't play my marimba there's 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 other better marimba pieces and my story with that sort of to a comedic extent is i wanted to play his uh a robe of orange flame on one of my dma recitals and i emailed him and said mr dean i'd like to play your piece can i purchase it somewhere can i get it from you and he didn't reply. And so I bugged him again. And, you know, Mr. Dean, you know, I've got this recital coming up. I'd really like to play your piece. And I keep bugging him. And I don't think he was, quote, unquote, ignoring my emails. I think it was just sort of, you know, it, he would get to it eventually. And so finally, he gets back to me. And I was so excited he got back. And he just said, yeah, that's fine. You can play my piece. Um, I think Bill Mersh has a copy of it. If you just want to email him and get it from him. He didn't even have his own piece. And he misspelled his name in the email. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so, so poor at self-promotion and like the most like beautiful, humble way. And I know that's a, like a, a weird, weird thing to, to put it that way. But yeah, that's like so, so well put from you, like how how he just wasn't into like this sort of icky, constantly selling yourself like like everyone feels the need to do these days. Um, well, we're sort of drawing toward our close of our session here, but I wanted to to go back to Drew uh, and ask about Drew. You and Chris worked pretty extensively on the the DFW freelance scene together. Uh, I know you both play in Dallas Winds, and I'm sure your paths cross many times outside of that. And in a former life, I was a freelancer in South Florida, um, and I learned what that life was like. And um, you very quickly learn what it's like to work with someone that is prepared or is unprepared. Um, and just outside of that, there's a certain uh, personability to someone that you want to work with again or not. Um, and I can very much picture 
Mr. Dean as being the prepared and personable person that we knew him to be. But Drew, could you tell us what your experience was like working with Chris on the freelance scene? Absolutely. You know, it's like, as you're saying with that, it's like whether it's freelancing or just playing, you know, it's like there are people you want to play with and there's people not quite so much, you know. And Chris was like, you know, um, just my experience was just like, okay, one, I don't think Chris ever knew someone that he didn't like. You know, and it was just like one of like, okay, the first time that we played together, it was a Dallas Wind Symphony show. And, um, okay, at, at that point, I had never met Chris. I didn't know him. I mean, like, you know, like a college in undergrad at McMurray College, which is about that big, you know, it's like I played um, etude for a quiet hall. And it was like, okay, I'm standing beside the guy. Now, this, this is Dallas Wind Symphony. I'm standing behind, beside the guy that wrote that. And I'm going, oh, crap. Uh, you know, it's just like, it's, it's just, it, it doesn't compute, you know. And he is just the nicest guy, you know. And if it, it, it got to a point it kind of made me frustrated because at the end, it was like, Chris, what's going on? He did not want to talk about himself. He wanted to, to talk about you. You know, and like, this is like one of like, when like we were playing together at first, it's, Drew, I really love your playing. And I'm going, you been talking to me? You know, it just like, it, it, it just didn't compute, you know, and it was just, his way of approaching things is so not what you think of a... He is the opposite of a self-promoter. And um, it was just a joy to like play with him. Because, like, one, he's an incredible player. You know, and... But then he has no ego at all. You know, and he just wants to help you play better. And... Um, uh, there's a good story here, like when like he was principal of the Las Colinas and Symphony. I had played in there a lot and stuff. And okay, I play in the in the uh, I'm a core member of the Dallas Wind Symphony, and I'm the uh, mallet player, which is not a fun position to be in because like the way that that group goes is like okay, um, the principal percussionist assigns it like okay. You've got your specialty, and your specialty is that the whole time. And there are times it's like, okay, I actually got into the Dallas music scene by being a mallet player. I was a four-mallet player, and then people like, okay, well, you can play all the four-mallet stuff or all the like mallet stuff. And it's like, you're like, really? I don't like mallets all that much. I love snare drum, you know, but... In the Wind Symphony, I play mallets all the time, and I'm sick of it, <laughs> you know. So, like, in uh, the, the, like, Lost Colinas, like, Symphony, he was like, okay, Drew, you don't have to play mallets at all. <laughs> you can play as much snare drum as you want or, like, whatever. And it was great because, like, playing with him is, like, our conversation was always, okay, one, 
we're both gearheads. And I'm sure Pajanus is like seeing this and it's like, okay, one, I know for a fact Chris never threw anything away. <laughs> you know, I mean, he like, the paint sticks. sticks. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like. Yes, and if you know, but there's all these like little trinkets and pieces of metal and things like that. It's like, okay, what does this go to? And it's like a um, Tetris. Okay, where does this go? There, there is a certain place that I know that 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 this can, this like thing can fit in. But it's like, okay, he and I are kind of like, um, man. You can't choose your family, but if you could, he would be my brother. You know, and it's just like, we would just like be able to just like um, converse of like, okay, we're just on this plane of like, okay, we're both gearheads. We love gear. We love snare drums. We love cymbals. It's just like, okay, and so just that whole like conversation was just like, um, you can get out of politics or like, you know, in freelancing, you can get to this point of like, okay, um, there's this kind of competition of stuff like that. But like me and Chris, it was just like, it was this sort of brotherhood, you know, it just, okay, here's this cool way of doing something. Cool. You know, well, like, here's another way of doing it. Cool. You know, I mean, it's like, we were just exchanging things and it was just like, I wish I could have studied with him because it was just like, with y'all people, y'all have experienced something I wish that I could have. You know, because it's just like, he, he was just like one of those like uh, special ones. And like, as like, I was saying uh, earlier, I think before like Janice actually got on, she had played me a recording of like one of their first records, like which it was like, okay, this is unreal. This is not just a percussionist. This is a high-level composer equal to anyone else. And um, in the freelance world, it was just like, okay, we were just in such brotherhood of like, okay, just talking gear. Like, okay, is there some better way of playing this thing? Okay, well, uh, how did you like do that? This. Cool, you know, I mean, so it was an exchange of ideas and, and like he was so much into, as like y'all know, he was so much into sound of just like, okay, what's the better sound? It doesn't matter if he can play a million notes a minute, it doesn't matter if it doesn't sound good, you know. So um, it was just a pleasure to, to play with him. Well, Drew, thanks so much. It was, it was lovely hearing all that. I wanted to, to mention, um, we didn't introduce them because they just uh, asked to be flies on the wall, but because their names came up a couple of times, I was just going to mention that uh, Chris's wife, Janice, and sister, Leslie, are, are both in the Zoom. So if you heard us referencing them, that's that's they are here listening live as we're recording. So that's, that's what those references were. Uh, but Brady, to sort of help us wrap up, um, I brought you on as a, as a co-pilot here. And then it seems that things you know flew smoothly and, <laughs> and your services weren't required. But since you are here and you are yet another Christopher Dean student, could you tell us about your experience studying with him? Yeah, sure. And not a problem for me. I could just sit here and listen to these stories forever. Um, 
Yeah, I was a student there um, from 2003 to 2008 at the University of North Texas. And so John was actually my like freshman marimba teacher. And I was at the premiere for Vespertine Formations my like freshman year. And just to give you, Jason, just to give you an idea of how that piece traveled, your premiere performance left such an impact on me that I put it on my senior recital. And then I coached it with some of my students this year. Which I remember hearing it on that. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, you know, we, we were talking about, we were talking about Chris's compositions um, and the ways in which they're special. But I think one of the things that you can agree about most of his music is that there is some technical difficulty to it, but most of the stuff becomes like a mental tour de force. Like Vespertine Formations, that middle like whole tone arpeggio section um, is like so difficult. I mean, I played Process of Invention for a decade before I finally felt like I got it right. So um, I feel like that's some of the stuff that's special about what he does. I had um, some thoughts while y'all were talking and um, we talked about him as a composer. There are a lot of percussion composers, but the phrase that I heard tossed around even while he was still alive was that he was a great composer who just happened to write for percussion. And I think that's kind of the difference is uh, he reached that status as a as a as an artist where he existed outside of his instrument in a really strong way. His identity as an artist was very strong, regardless of what the medium was. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing. It's something that I'm going to honestly probably spend the rest of my life trying to emulate. Because when you're around that kind of creativity, uh, there's no way to describe it in words or in prose you i don't know there you can't learn it from books you just have to be it's like you know sunshine you have to just be around it to sort of see what it is to be that type of artist and, and that's what i got the most out of my time studying with him and being around him at, at unt was you know i mean there are numerous things that i think about of him in my timpani playing there's numerous things in my marimba playing and, and phrasing and how i approach programming percussion ensemble and think about art and it's all great, but the the intangible sort of like sunshine that I got from him that I'm gonna sort of spend the rest of my life looking for, I think is the biggest thing that I got from him that I, it's, it's hard to describe and it makes you a little misty just sort of thinking about it because it was so important to who I consider myself to be now, so. That's Very beautiful, well Brady. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. And we will see you on part two of this two-part episode. Thanks so much.